Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Shazia Hafiz Ramji and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project. Today we're presenting a two-part interview with David Cheriandi, the author of the novel Sukuyan and Brother and the memoir I've been meaning to tell you. This is the first part of a two-part interview that was originally recorded in the summer of 2022 on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, also known as Vancouver. David Chiriandi's first novel, Sukuyan, was published in 2007 to wide critical acclaim, garnering recognition from the Governor-General's Literary Award Prizes, the Impact Dublin Literary Award, the BC Book Prizes, the Toronto Book Award, among several others. The publisher of Sukuyan, Arsenal Pulp Press, says that a Sukuyan is an evil spirit in Caribbean folklore, and a symbol here of the distant and dimly remembered legacies that continue to haunt the Americas. This extraordinary first novel set in Ontario, in a house near the Scarborough Bluffs, focuses on a Canadian-born son who despairingly abandons his Caribbean-born mother suffering from dementia. The son returns after two years to confront his mother and a young woman who now mysteriously occupies the house. In his desire to atone for his past and live anew, he is compelled to imagine his mother's life before it all slips into darkness. Her arrival in Canada during the early 60s, her childhood in Trinidad during the Second World War, and her lurking secret that each have tried to forget. In a conversation with Dr. Kit Dobson, published in the same year in the journal Kalaloo, Charyandi has said that Sukuyan, quote, possesses an anxious relationship with what we call history, end quote. This is a conversation will extend to poetry in part one and confront head-on with history in part two. Charyandi's second novel, Brother, was published 10 years after Sukuyan in 2017. It received the 2017 Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize, the Toronto Book Award, and the Ethel Wilson Prize for Fiction at the BC Book Prizes. It was also a finalist for Canada Reads in 2019. Set in the summer of 1991 in a Scarborough housing complex, Brother is a coming-of-age story about two brothers, the sons of Trinidadian immigrants, whose lives are changed by gun violence. Writing in The Guardian, Dina Nairi has said, quote, Chariandi handles some of the most emotional issues of our time, the casual indignities of being a poor child of immigrants, and the impervious power posturing of police in the black community. The result is seething and persuasive. In 2019, Chariandi received the Wyndham Campbell Award for Fiction, and in 2022, Brother was made into a movie by Clement Virgo, 
Homelessness may be familiar with for its adaptation of Lawrence Hill's Book of Negroes. Charyandi's third book is a memoir, I've Been Meaning to Tell You, which was published in 2018 and takes the form of a letter to his daughter in the style of Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. In the first part of this interview, I speak with David about his writing process, the coloniality of narrative, the poetics of the untellable, creative reading, teaching creative writing, Alice Monroe, and, of course, emotions. <laughs> we hope you enjoy this conversation between David Charyandi and myself. Thank you so much for listening. such an honor to speak with you. you know, you've given so many wholesome and insightful interviews and we're so lucky to have your words both written and spoken and I'm wondering if we could begin by maybe turning this around a little bit so that the question I ask you is what's the question that you wish to be asked? That's such a, a characteristically generous gesture, Shazia, and it's a real pleasure and honor to, to be speaking with you. Um, I really, really admire your writing, as, as I hope you know. So this is, this is a real treat. I guess oftentimes, in certain interviews, people sometimes forget that I'm a, a writer, uh, mm. first and foremost, a creative writer, so-called creative writer, I'm writing fiction, and that uh, they may not know this, but I'm oftentimes really fixated on the question of form and process necessarily and uh, these matters and I guess through this I uh, you know create narratives or undo narratives or break apart narratives and and then sometimes people make meaning out of those narratives uh, in some sort of way I suppose I'm making meaning out of those narratives too but um, sometimes neglected is that uh, that fact that I'm I'm a writer Mm. Uh, engaging with uh, formal challenges. And so um, maybe I could talk a little bit about how I see those challenges um, and maybe even, uh, this is not too ambitious, but how I write. I'm working on a new book right now and more and more I, I feel that I write in an, in an unusual way, or maybe every writer thinks that, but uh, it seems oftentimes the, the, the least constructive way, but what I do is I accumulate words in a document, and that's easy to do on, in electronic form now. Mm. So I just accumulate words, and these are half sentences, and these are bad sentences, and, um, and sometimes I very often use the ellipses uh, to kind of indicate uh, places where new words or new information or even just uh, like a fragment that rhythmically works. Mm. But what I produce uh, for the first draft, second draft, third draft is just this mess that I cannot even show anyone. Mm. It's, it's impossible to show someone. They, they think I was an, an absolute idiot, which, which maybe, you know, maybe that's <laughs> where it all springs from, a type of, type of idiocy. <laughs> and, um, but it, it really involves my writing process involves me uh, accumulating words and then pushing and moving those words around and rearranging them. And so in a certain way, 
the fantasy that I might have had about writing maybe when I was five, which is that you simply, the way a, a profoundly gifted oral storyteller might do, mm. and I'm not one, I'm most definitely not one, um, simply tell the story and it evolves or it develops in a straightforward way, even though it's, of course, extraordinarily complex and is drawing on so many different uh, things in, in, in oral storytelling. But there's kind of, there's no going back once it's spoken. It's, mm -hmm. it's there, it's doing its work, and then you add to it and you keep doing that. And the oral storyteller must have tremendous confidence and belief and profound skill to be able to do that. I cannot do that at all, and I can't do it in writing. And maybe the something that compares to that is um, the writing of someone. I do know a couple writers who seem to work very systematically. They just think of a word, they put it down on the paper, and they're working mm. with a pen and paper. Put another word, and they accumulate words that way, and the sentence builds, and they add another sentence, and then there's very little editing afterwards. Right, like a very measured and deliberate kind of way. Absolutely, absolutely. But I'm really not like that. I, I, I think the comparison might be, and here's, you know, maybe I just don't know enough about this art form, how I might imagine a type of abstract painting where you just plop ink on a canvas and mm. then move things around except that you know I'm there's there's certain conventions in, in uh, fiction that I'm working with and working through and working against and you can see those in my fiction I, I wouldn't say that um, can I ask what, what conventions you're thinking of at the moment yeah I guess well I mean the way I put it right now is you know ultimately I'm, I'm interested in the narrative and some of the people that I most admire, you know, in the world, Dion Brand and I had a, 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 I thought, a really interesting discussion about this maybe about three years ago when we were on stage and did a type of talk and, and dialogue together. And she um, she formulated it then, but and she'd formulated it previously and also after uh, a heightened suspicion to narrative. Mm -hmm. um, all to the you know to the point, and it's a very uh, incredibly important point. But the, the coloniality of narrative, hmm. um, how narrative uh, entraps us into certain resolutions, into certain arcs, um, all of these sorts of things. Um, linear time. Linear time. Exactly. Events and experiences should play out and resolve. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And from that comes other conventions, conventions about character, conventions mm -hmm. about roundness, conventions, um, conventions in, indeed about meaning itself and the work of literature, the work of writing, I would say. Mm -hmm. But I, um, I continue to work in narrative. Um, I am powerfully affected by that critique. And maybe that's why my narratives are, are oftentimes so splintered and maybe also because, uh, you know, and maybe another feature is the, I, um, I, I reach for what I imagine to be the poetic in my, in my prose, even though I'm not a poet, and I, I have, you know, enough respect for that extraordinarily difficult art of poetry mm. uh, to, uh, to halt, you know, and not say, oh, I'm, I'm trying to write poetry, because I'm not. But the poetry that 
brand writes and the poetry that um, other people write that is interrupting narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm fro profoundly interested in, even as I find narrative um, important for for my own purposes, for the for, for what I'm trying to execute in my own writing. How does the poetry, the form of poetry, interrupt narrative as you're seeing it, or maybe as you're thinking about it now? I can see how it's working in Sucuyant, maybe with the oral storytelling of the Sucuyant story and with the old skin, can, can you not know me? Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that's poetry itself. How are you thinking about it interrupting narrative now? Has that changed over the books that you've written? Yeah, I think, um, I think in those first two books, in Sukuyon and Brother, um, it's definitely both books, but maybe um, in the first, in Sukuyon, I'm thinking just first of all about um, one interruption is the, um, the use of vernacular. Mm. But of course, in uh, Caribbean vernacular or nation language, there are also stories being told. And again, the, the work and function and necessity of narrative in order to preserve and uh, relate these stories over the ages, particularly because they are uh, not official stories, but stories that are nevertheless very important. Um, I guess one can see both the work of a type of poetics, because it's it's vernacular language, it's a different different use of language, but it's also the use of, of narrative. Um, and that's one way, and that's maybe you alluded to that, but I also see, the I, I maybe even more powerfully see the work of poetry, and now here I am, again, I'm speaking not as a poet, I would see it in the, in the ruptures in the narrative created by the condition of dementia in which language use becomes interrupted and narrative becomes strained and interrupted without diminishing the sorrow of the condition of dementia, of course, mm. without uh, undermining what it is for a black woman, particularly uh, in this health system, to, uh, you know, to uh, black women, uh, working class black women, to unbecome through dementia. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a hard situation. In that relationship between the mother and the son, the mother trying now to tell a story mm. that is, in a certain sense, untellable because of trauma, but also untellable because of the condition that she's in, uh, there is a poetics um, that is working, poetics issuing from her, and also a poetics of interpretation. And it's perhaps similar in Brother, um, in that the, the relationship between, again, between the mother and son, um, but again, this time mediated through a different type of trauma, a trauma that they've both experienced, uh, the traumatic loss of a brother and son. Mm -hmm. And once again, the ability to tell the story is interrupted, uh, thus forcing into the telling, forcing the telling into a different form, an interrupted form. And that's where I see that, what I'm calling uh, a, a poetics operating in the, in the novel, um, a, a, critical, a critical perspective on narrative even as I am, I am attempting to tell a story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your work seems to be, since Sukuyant, I feel like this act of telling has become, it's sort of given so much clarity to the storytelling in each book, and especially with I've been meaning to tell you, and you know, there's their sense of address, you know, because it's written as a letter to your daughter. I'm wondering, how did you, how did you come to that moment of 
realizing that this story is necessary to tell because I feel like there's there can be so much disempowerment, especially for BIPOC folks, to feel that the story is worth telling or to come to that point where they recognize that the telling itself is the story and is power in itself because, you know, what we're taught often in institutions, generally speaking, is that aesthetics is separate from politics. And when that happens, the telling is separate from the story itself. You know, the story is something creative, you do something, you release your time, it's separate from life. And art is not a function when aesthetics and politics are separated. But I feel like Supriyant undoes that completely. And your work continues to undo that sort of imposition of what writing should do, what a novel can do. But how did you come to this point of telling, to honor the telling itself? There's so much in that question um, that's helping me think through a set of issues I've been trying to give voice to, trying to, trying to put into words. And I think you've gone a long way to, to helping, me, helping me do just that. I do think that both in the institutional context that we work within, you know, the disciplinary pressures, uh, but also the world of art, capital A, mm -hmm. art. There is a powerful pressure to, to believe that both the force of experience and the telling is not enough. Mm. I think that in I've Been Meaning to Tell You, it's a different type of book. It really is. Um, I'm, I'm not doing work as I, as I um, normally do as a fiction writer. And so I see it, I don't see it as kind of a, a progression in, in terms of my body of work heading towards I've been meaning to tell you, mm. but rather as um, a different type of project. And I think what, what it hinges on so much is a different addressee. Mm. I was, you know, just interestingly, just yesterday, um, I was seeing someone for the first time in a little while, and then someone else joined joined us, and you know, lovely people, and um, we were talking for a while, and then one person headed off with another person, and uh, that person said, you know, I, you know, the person has said, you know, that they appreciate my work, uh, but said, you know, you know, I've been meaning to tell you, I just found it not as, not as angry and not as uh, aesthetically wrought, I guess, as, mm. as my previous book. I didn't, I guess I didn't have words to say, to explain that, you know, maybe that is a different book addressed to someone differently, mm -hmm. uh, addressed to a different uh, individual, my 13-year-old my, uh, my child. I didn't have words to get into all kinds of things, which I guess we as racialized authors and, and I'm thinking just particularly right now as a, as a black author, how different emotions can be cynically kind of promoted. Not only our ingenuity or beauty or joy or these sorts of things, our laughter, or, but also our anger. We like to think, oh, no, anger is, is immediately radical and, uh, mm. and, you know, challenges but I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I think uh, capitalism is is brilliant at appropriating and uh, commodifying. Commodifying uh, emotions like emotions anger. Emotions like mm -hmm. anger, like anger. So there's that, but there was simply, you know, it was also, I wanted to say, you know, this is a, uh, this kind of a book from the heart towards a 
13-year-old child who's beginning to wrestle with the questions of, and I say beginning to wrestle because I, I, I don't quite, that's not quite the right set of words because I actually think that, that children of color start to figure out the world at a distressingly early mm. age. I wanted to say something to her. That's what that book was. You know, I was thinking about the last words in that book, and it's you recalling the moment of your daughter's birth, and you say you held her, and all you could do was listen. I did the only thing a father could do. I held you and listened. And compared to the last words in Brother and in Sukhliyan, in Brother, the last word is volume, and in Sukhliyan, it's uh, eye stash. And both of those words in Brother and Sukhliyan have this kind of private language of gesture, of joy, that's so specific. It can't be reproduced, you know, outside of those characters' relationships. And similarly, in I've been meaning to tell you, it's so specific. Like, it's just between you and your daughter, and mm -hmm. it's an act of listening that, that brings that deeply felt joy to close the books. And I feel like that itself is so powerful. Right. How do you, do you think about joy as joy when you're, because all of the books, they end on such deeply felt joy. You think about often in terms of joy, or how did you how did you decide to close those? <laughs> That's such a again such a, a generous uh, you know generous response to the the you know, the difficult challenge of closing a book, and, and mm. I'm sure you you understand that yourself. And I think you're I think you're absolutely right. I guess I mean, I didn't think about it. Uh, you know, it's funny. I really didn't think about this, but now that you've said it, I I really do see it. It's both, especially both volume and eyestash, they're words that could not mean anything much mm -hmm. at all. Uh, one's almost a cipher, you know, kind of eyestash, what, what on earth is that? Mm -hmm. um, and, but then also volume, in isolation, what, what could it, what could it mm -hmm. mean? But you won't, we only know what it means because it announces a type of intimacy between people mm -hmm. in both cases. Uh, it announces that the mother um, has absorbed kind of the um, the demand of youth in a certain way, even as she she holds her own sorrow and her sense of, of what has passed. And then Eistash is this uh, with the with the mother past. Um, it is the but and the mother who through her condition of dementia is now kind of blending words together in, mm. in, in innovative ways. Forgets what an eye, uh, an eyebrow is and kind of confuses it. What's Mustache, eyebrow, or eyestache, I guess that's what it is. And in recalling the, the mother, the two remaining characters invoke that word as, mm. as her, as a, a kind of almost this minor, minor tribute to, to, to her, to her spirit. Right. Um, but it is about intimacy, and I, I love how you see it as joy. It strikes me, it's amazing how often, and it may, it may be because you are a a very special type of reader and feel a closeness to your to your work and, and maybe it's reciprocated uh, as you describe it as joy I, it feels that way to me because I want to end with mm. with um, an affirmation of the uh, of the bonds of what sustains uh, through these through these bonds of kinship and, and community uh, but so many people say you know the books are so depressing they're profoundly <laughs> profoundly depressing and I've never known what to, because it, it doesn't, 
they, they don't seem that way to me. I mean, I'm just being very honest. I, I don't get it. I mean, it's, it just seems, well, this is just life. This is, I don't understand why, why you consider this, this depressing. But, but anyway, I think maybe, maybe joy is in the eye of the beholder or the person who mm. sees the importance of, of joy among, uh, among diasporic people, among black people, among brown people. Um, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about those, those, uh, the preciousness of those moments of, of connection and affirmation. Yeah, yeah, especially, you know, I'm thinking of the ending of Brother now. I was surprised that the mother articulates volume, you know, in the midst of the son and his, the neighborhood voice and them bonding over music and the mother's voice, you know, bonds, brings them together. And it was just so moving because it just brought everyone together. And I feel like that's what writers do. That's what novelists do, even though there's this romantic notion of writers doing their own thing and writing in their own room. But really... Why do we write? When you were writing Sukuyan, who were you writing for? You know, I think I think I have a, a strange uh, development story as a writer. Mm. I knew from an early age I wanted to do creative writing. But, you said when you were five, right? Um, well, that was interestingly that there was a moment when maybe it was before five. I was learning how to read. And the teacher said, well, it's very easy. You just remember what that word, you memorize that word, and you remember that word, and remember that word. And you say, get 10 words that you've memorized, and then you look at, you know, Jack walks fast or something like that, and mm. you put the words together, and now you're reading. Mm. And I thought this was a complete lie. That's not what reading is. Reading is when you sit with someone you really trust and love, like your mother. And she, through some magic of looking at the page, tells a story. Mm. Um, it was a profoundly creative act. Um, it wasn't about memorizing a stupid word and putting that behind and beside another stupid word and incredibly mechanical thing. I guess in later life I started thinking, oh, maybe I was, maybe that was a signal that I, I wanted to be a writer. I, I wanted to, I wanted to generate that magic that actually that I associated with reading and maybe a deeper understanding is that that, that's, that is what reading is. It is a generative act, it is a creative act, but uh, I wanted more than what, what I was being taught in, in school. Maybe that's the, that's the longer story of my, of my existence as a writer. It's always been something more than what I've been trained to do. Mm. I did study English literature because I wanted to read and it was the, it seemed like the most straightforward thing to do. After my third year of university, I really gravitated, you know, I think it was that, in that year where I read the first non-white author in a, in a, ever, in an institutional setting. Maybe only a year before that, I'd read James Baldwin mm. as the first kind of um, non-white author. And I very quickly started to develop an interest in, in black writing and discovered the work of Austin Clark about the lives of black domestic workers in, in Toronto in the 50s and 60s, and my mother had been one of those people. Right. And so uh, it was a kind of a, just this bizarre kind of experience that, wow, that can, be, that can be the subject of literature. And I discovered Dion Brand and many other you know, black Canadian authors that we would uh, now know, George Ellie Clark and, and others. And so, you know, to kind of answer that question of who I write for who I write to, as I was gradually building the confidence and you know to do my own writing, 
um, these were the people that I was thinking about, of adding my voice in some modest way to their voices. Mm. And Dion very quickly started to become this, this really kind of powerful force. And, and Austin too, but eventually I met them and out of their great generosity, I guess you could say they, they, they took me under their wing, or there must be a better way of putting it. <laughs> um, there was a recognition, there was a recognition, um, a recognition of what I wanted to do, a recognition of the need mm. for me to, 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 to see and learn from, from writers. And, and then others kind of fell around that group. Uh, you know, there's, I know Ronaldo Walcott for as, as, as long as them, and there's a bunch of others. And it's a way of saying that I think I, I continue to think about them and continue to show them my work, mm. you know, when I write. You know, I've been asked, you know, do you write for the, you, then do you write for the black community? You know, I guess I, I, am, I'm, I am profoundly honored by the ways in which uh, black people in Canada and elsewhere, in the Caribbean, in the U.S. and U.K., kind of see my work. I, I am profoundly, profoundly honored. It means so much. I'm profoundly honored by the way that brown people see my work and Asian people, uh, East Asian people, you know, other people as well. Um, but I'm often asked, you know, do you write for the black community? And both Ronaldo and Dion and others have pointed out that the black community is no monolithic thing. Mm. Um, that there are a lot of very conservative people in the black community who may not be, may not see things the way that I see things. And that they are, you know, members of the black community. I'm curious to know um, how because your books have been translated into so many languages and you've read all over the world. I'm curious to know how your books have been received in, say, the Caribbean compared to a place like Germany. Like, what kinds of responses have you received? I'd imagine they're varied across the board, but mm -hmm. I'm yeah. especially curious about Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. The Caribbean, I'd say, it's been a kind and generous response. It really has. And what made me nervous in a certain way of writing my first book was that I, you know, I'm, I'm a... I might be understood as a member of the Caribbean diaspora, but I would mm. I would just I would honestly just call myself you know kind of a, a black Canadian. That's that's how it's described. But um, a, you know a, a number of Caribbean critics you know see me position me as that or a Caribbean Canadian author or whatnot. I've never mm. lived in the Caribbean, but as the book from Sukiyot suggests, maybe as I can tell you, and even brother suggests, uh, it, it it lives you know mm. that that uh, that. That uh, complex geocultural formation lives in me and in my work, and there's been a you know kind of uh, I feel like a generosity, and um, uh, I guess a knowledgeable generosity is what I really emphasize. Uh, recently, you know, the Caribbean uh, writer, uh, francophone Caribbean writer Patrick Chamisso, extraordinary writer, you know, founder with uh, Edward Glisson of uh, Creolite movement. Mm -hmm. Powerful, powerful writer and thinker. He, um, I don't know how it happened, but he wrote a lengthy introduction to my to Sukuyong. and that to me was just like mind blowing. It's once you know, it's enough for like someone of like Dion Brand, you know, see my work and to to. Um, I guess I want to contrast that maybe, even though you know, I'm I'm always you know I'm 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 grateful when people far away read my book or, or books or when they see something in, in the books and uh, I am I, I am very sincere uh, sincerely grateful but 
I'm not sure how it, how, first of all, even how, how the translation for something like Sukuyong mm. works in German. So how does the dialect work? How did they, how did they do that? And the title of the of Sukuyong is not, in German, is not Sukuyong. It's uh, the, the Caribbean demon. And oh, so it's a completely different kind of way of framing it, right? I don't know how, I don't know how it's being taken up. And it's kind of a, you know, when I put my critical hat on and I, I guess I speak with other writers and maybe, maybe I, you know, when I'm, I do feel very lucky that I've been able to, to teach and I invite people to think carefully about how they're reading a text, because there's mm. an ethics involved there. How are you reading the text? And what kind of knowledge are you drawing upon in order to decipher what's happening in the text? Mm. Or are you, are you imposing other kind of knowledge uh, upon it? Right, biases come through in reading as well. Don't yeah. think about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do you read a text then? Hmm. Is it different from when you're reading alone at home as opposed to when you're reading to teach something? Yeah, how do I read? I, you know, I've just helped create this new course um, at where I teach at, at SFU, and it's called mm -hmm. Creative Reading. And it was supposed to be the introduction to uh, a minor in creative writing that oh. SFU is, has developed. And I made the you know, argument that, well, I would like to teach this introductory course in second year level as a creative reading course with the argument that um, in order to become a, a writer, you, you have to see what other writers are doing. You have mm -hmm. to kind of build a, a sense of awareness and sensitivity to, to these, uh, these, these moves and maybe also build a different type of vocabulary because I, I, I'm not sure if always the vocabulary for reading texts that we typically uh, use in English literature classes, at least the English literature classes that I've been, mm -hmm. I was trained in, provides the same thing or enough yeah. for us as writers. So increasingly I've been trying to do that with literature in general. And you know, I've been thinking and, and here I am, you know, betraying yet another kind of book that I'd like to write, or maybe, maybe it's a long essay. There must be so many of these <laughs> that I'll never get to. As Toni Morrison wrote, really, I think a really striking book, um, Playing in the Dark, in which uh, you know she was reading um, white American literature, mm. but reading it um, as a black woman, attentive to the questions and, and challenges and, and, and uh, intense, you know, the urgencies of, of race and racism. What would it be for me to read many of the, I mentioned, you know, it's third year university before I read, you know, A Person of Color. Uh, but I was reading before that, mm -hmm. and reading intensely and with interest. What would it be to go back now and try to figure out what I was finding in those texts that in many respects were so remote from me? Mm. But nevertheless, I was I was searching for something in those texts. Right, right. Um, I think Dion Brand is, is has already done something brilliant. Um, you know, uh, the autobiography. Yeah, reading. yeah, the autobiography of the autobiography reading. Yeah, something like that. yeah. It would what a brilliant thing if if that book were to be expanded. I mean, what a, what a, what a gift that would be to to continue mm. kind of learning about how how 
such a great author as, as Dion um, has read. But I think maybe in, in a kind of a more of a, uh, you know, a modest way, I'd love to do that with certain writers that, that I, you know, uh, Alistair McLeod, I was reading Alistair McLeod when I wrote the first, my first story, and I used it to, uh, to get into a creative writing class hmm. for my third year. And what was it? What is it about the work of Alistair MacLeod, kind of, kind of uh, Scottish Gaelic Canadian writer, kind of writes about the Maritimes at Cape Breton. Mm. Uh, yeah, writes about working class experience. Writes also about the persistence of a kind of Scottish Gaelic culture in 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 a kind of uh, in the context of contemporary Canadian modernity, in which these things. Why why remember these things? What's the point of these things? Somehow that that resonated for me. Mm. Though it's very different, um, and uh, even though we are different writers, I, I point out here maybe that he he did support my writing and he did you know blurb my first book, and uh, I took a course, a little you know tiny summer course with him once. Or writers have never met Alice, uh, Alice Monroe, or yeah. someone like Michael Mondacci has been supportive of my work, mm. um, and uh, that I've I've read uh, very carefully and I, I, I admire very deeply. I wanted to ask you about Alice, especially, because mm. I feel like I recognize resonances between, say, the ending of Sucreant with The Progress of Love by Alice Munro. Oh, that's kind interesting. Of, yeah, I yeah. don't know if that's just me being too, you know, drawing connections all over the place, but there's also this intergenerational cycle of trauma and how the story transforms in that story with Sucreant as well. And then also, I've been meaning to tell you, which is the the title that you know yeah, took me off yeah. to Alice. Yeah, yeah. Something I've been meaning to tell yeah, you. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great. Uh, sharp is there something with Alice? <laughs> yeah, there's a sharp observation there. I've got to confess that I didn't know about the. I did know about the, the short story, but I didn't realize that uh, Alice Munro's uh, book, and I forget which one, was published under the title something I've been meaning to tell you. Or, um, or something like that in the yeah. States, so not in Canada. Oh. So I never knew that that was the title of the actual collection. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but that was made clear to me when I proposed the title. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's a, funny enough, there is already a title like that. Oh, but Canlet, yeah, like, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I don't think they, they probably, <laughs> probably going to strike against me, actually. Um, one thing I do, I, I continue to admire in Alice Monroe. I mean, one thing that I, I do find really striking in Alice Monroe is that you know, like, where are the people of color? It's it's quite extraordinary. It's like you have to do some real work to actually mm. not. <laughs> and maybe that was maybe for Alice Monroe that was an ethical position. Maybe she felt I don't know that experience. I'm not going to write about those people. Mm. Um, and she's you know she's oftentimes writing about small town places where maybe there's not too many. But we know those people are there always. Right. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And in contrast with many other writers of her generation, she had almost, I'm just trying to think of writer, of people of color in her, in her books and uh, in her stories. And right now I can only think of one substantial one is the Albanian Virgin. And mm. there's kind of these people, I think vaguely from, you know, the kind of the Balkans area right. and kind of ties to this, this story that she writes. So, I mean, that's really something that, you know, maybe a, a kind of a, a youth who is enjoying literature writ large, you know, uh, but also searching for 
searching as someone who wants to be a writer, searching for materials that can aid him in his in the work he wants to do. Mm-hmm. And somehow Alice Monroe does some of that. And I think it's because, so that, that to me is striking, in, in the absence of any, you know, any effort on Alice Monroe's part to kind of uh, come close to the portrayal of, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of significant portrayal of, of people of color. One thing that I've always admired about her is one, she, she does, you know, she is looking at working class people. And, um, and she does that in a nuanced way that I've always admired. I've always admired. You know, formally, I find her sentences so clean and her writing so strong. I just find it, I uh, find it really um, without, without all of the dross and that I find clutters up so much prose. Mm. Uh, you know, words count, words matter when she writes, when she writes her sentences. And maybe it's the form that she's working with, the short story. She, you know, she, she just doesn't have time for excess words or word or ver- verboseness or whatnot. But finally, it's also the um, the wariness of sentimentality. You know, sometimes I, I, I spy a certain waspishness in that. You know, it is the utter kind of wariness to almost a fault of sentimentality. So anytime someone feels something, it is almost kind of in a metafictional way, kind of the person, you know, through, through the kind of the way the consciousness is linked to the text, the person is saying, oh, but how silly of me to, silly, mm. silly tears I'm, I'm crying. Or, like uh, a self-congratulatory uh, gesture almost. No, no, I would say more it's, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. Yeah, I, now that I'm, I'm getting it. Um, maybe self-congratulatory, but more, more self-diminishing. In fact, yeah, no, I would say it's it's more, you know, how, you know, why am I feeling this? Or it's a, it's a weariness around emotional expressiveness. Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is very simply, and I could be wrong, but what I think I'm getting at is that's a very culturally specific thing, and that's about being a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Mm-hmm. That's what I see in Alice Merle. That maybe doesn't work exactly the same as, as some of my writing, where people express emotions, right. but, but not, not always. I, I feel it's like twice in my books, someone's crying and they don't know until they touch their own face. Mm-hmm. And um, the inavailability of emotions in the in specific context is important in my work. But I do, uh, that aside, I do admire her resistance to a sentimentality that I think um, kind of maybe goes a bit too far. And as much as I admire, for instance, Alistair MacLeod, um, I wonder if there's a kind of, uh, it, it pushes in that direction, there's a kind of a romantic romanticism, mm. again, that Alice, Alice Monroe does not mm. um, go towards. Shazia Hafiz Ramji, and you've been listening to Tia House Talks. Both David and myself would like to express gratitude to Ebony Magnus at Simon Fraser University for granting a space to have this conversation. Please join me for part two of a conversation with David, where we'll discuss research creation, history, the long 18th century, and humility. Tia House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. 
We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stoffel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Thank you so much for listening.